Hosea chapter 2, we're going to look at verses 14 through 23. The husband's pursuit. So we'll begin reading at verse 14. Therefore, behold, I will allure her, will bring her into the wilderness and speak comfort to her. I will give her her vineyards from there in the valley of Achor as a door of hope. She shall sing there as in the days of her youth, as in the days when she came up from the land of Egypt. And it shall be in that day, says the Lord, that you will call me my husband and no longer call me my master. For I will take from her mouth the name of the Baals, and they shall be remembered by their name no more. In that day I will make a covenant for them with the beasts of the field, with the birds of the air, and with the creeping things of the ground. Bow and sword of battle I will shatter from the earth to make them lie down safely. I will betroth you to me forever. Yes, I will betroth you to me in righteousness and justice, in loving kindness and mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord. It shall come to pass in that day that I will answer, says the Lord. I will answer the heavens, and they shall answer the earth. The earth shall answer with grain, with new wine, and with oil. They shall answer Jezreel. Then I will sow her for myself on, in the earth, and I will have mercy on her who had not obtained mercy. And I will say to those who are not my people, you are my people. And they shall say, you are my God. Amen. Well, let us pray. Well, Lord, our God, we are thankful that you're the God who is love itself. Thank you so much, O Lord, as your word says, God is love. Thank you that your love is infinite. Thank you that your love is eternal. Thank you that your love is unchangeable. And thank you that we see your love in the work of Christ, that he was sent forth to be that sacrifice for his people. Thank you so much that he died in our stead. Thank you that he gave himself up for us, for his church, for his bride. And truly from heaven, he came and sought her, sought us to be his holy bride. And we're thankful so much, O Lord, that we can consider your love for such undeserving people. For we confess, O Lord, that we were not looking for you. We were not pursuing you. We were not knocking on your door. Yet you were so gracious to show forth our sin, show forth our need for Christ, and to give us that new life in and through the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you for your amazing grace. Thank you that it does not depend on him who wills or him who runs, but you who shows mercy. Thank you, O Lord, that those who believed upon you, you, have, you they have been given the right and been received as children of God. Not born of the will, not born of the flesh, but born of you. Thank you that you're the one who makes your people children of God. You're the one who, the ones you've chosen before the foundation of the world. Those are the ones you've set your eye upon. And thank you that Christ died for her. Christ died for them. And all the benefits that we have or because of Christ have been applied by the Spirit. And so we ask today that we would consider your love for us, that we would be reminded of what Christ is doing for us and what Christ has done for us. And we ask and pray that we would set our mind upon Christ this night to give you glory and praise and honor and be uplifted and be encouraged by all that you do. And we long for heaven. We long for home. We long for that marriage supper of the Lamb when Christ comes again. We long for that time where heaven and earth shall be in harmony. We long for that time where man and beast shall be in harmony. And thank you so much for what this image signifies, a place where there's no conflict, a place where there's no sin, a place where there's no turmoil. And we long for that day for a tired and weary people. So we ask you to uplift us now by your spirit. Send forth your spirit to give us illumination from on high. Send forth your spirit to save sinners. And we pray that you would be glorified in all things. We pray these things in the name of Christ. Amen. 
Well, in the book of Hosea, the warmth of God's love usually follows after the heat of God's wrath. And sometimes the most encouraging promises in God's word follow the most scathing assessments of the sinfulness of people. That's why some of the best words in the Bible are the but nows. We see that often in the book of Romans, often in the New Testament. We see how he talks about the sinfulness of man. He says, but now, especially in Romans, the righteousness of God has been revealed. Well, something similar is happening here in verse 14 with the word, therefore. After pleading with the children regarding the mother's adulterous ways and explaining what he will do to that adulterous wife, He then explains that he will persuade her and enter into a new covenant arrangement with her, something that is different than what he's entered into now. He uses the idea of marriage, uses the image of marriage to describe something about his love for his people and his love for his new covenant people in and through what he shall do for her. That's why marriage, ideally, is supposed to be a blessed picture for us of God's love for such an unlovely people. And the people during Hosea's time were an unlovely people. Remember, this is the northern kingdom during the the time of the divided kingdom. Uh, Remember, in Israel, there was no good king. None of them did what was right in the sight of the Lord. All were evil. And so Hosea, perhaps one of the first prophets to come on the scene, comes at a time of prosperity, comes at a time of much economic uh, growth and abundance. And so the people weren't thinking. The people weren't thinking about Yahweh. They weren't thinking uh, about judgment. They were thinking about the Baals and their lovers and the ones that they pursued rather than God most high. And so here comes Hosea and God commands him to enter into this symbolic act. I I said that I do believe that he does really enter into a marriage with one who engages in harlotry. And the message of Hosea really is Hosea's marriage. We see the adulterous wife and we see the husband Yahweh and what he will do to her both in judgment, but also in restoration. Now, I think I said the structure of the book is a little difficult. I followed John McKay and chapters one through three deals with Hosea's family and marriage and what that then signifies. And so certainly we see something of God's love for us tonight and love for his people in this section. But the problem that we can see from this section is what do we do with a wayward wife? Punishment is going to happen. Punishment shall occur for her adulterous ways. However, that is not going to be the end. However, the husband is going to pursue his wife and going to restore her and present her holy and without blame before the father, that she might be as white as snow. And so in Hosea 2, verses 14 through 23, we see how the Lord promises he will pursue his wayward wife and he will make her righteous. And so we'll look at this pursuit under two headings this evening. First of all, we'll see the husband's pursuit, verses 14 through 18. Then secondly, we'll see the husband's promise in verses 19 through 23. So the husband's pursuit and then the husband's promise. So let's first look at the husband's pursuit in verses 14 through 18. And in verses 14 uh, and 15, we do see the husband who pursues. 
Now remember, he is talking to the children. He is talking to individuals who are part of Israel as a whole. Their children refer to individuals who are part of Israel, the mother. And what's going to happen is that the remnant, I think it's probably the faithful remnant he's speaking to, they must speak to the rest of the nation. Here's what's going to happen if you don't turn. Here's what's going to happen if you don't turn to Yahweh. Here's what's going to happen if you don't, uh, if you continue worshiping the Baals rather than God most high. And so they were attributing their grain, their new wine and oil to the Baals. They're the, the heart of their economic prosperity. They were attributing it to something other than the Lord God most high. And what's going to result is going to be exile. That's still going to happen. That's still going to, uh, going to occur. There's still going to be punishment that shall take place. But what's going to happen after exile? That's why this therefore in verse 14 is so startling. Because we saw it therefore in verse 6. Therefore I will hedge up your way with the thorns I will wall her in. Verse 9, I will return and take away my grain in its time. And so you'd like to think he just continues on with the piling of judgment. But however, something changes. Henry said, when it was said she forgot me, verse 13, one would think it would have followed. Therefore I will abandon her. I will forget her. I will never look after her anymore. No, therefore I will allure her. Note God's thoughts and ways of mercy are infinitely above ours. His reasons are all fetched from within himself, not from anything in us. Nay, his goodness takes occasion for man's badness to appear so much more the illustrious. They are not pursuing him. They are not going after him. And yet he is going to be the one who saves. He's going to be the one who pursues. He's going to be the one who calls her back. And so we see that in verse 14. Therefore, behold, I will allure her. And sometimes the word allure can have a negative connotation to entice one to sin. But here it is used positively to persuade, to draw her back, to bring her back. I will do this very thing, says the Lord. She who is once allured by the Baals, after they are removed, he will remind her again of his love, but also his need for her. The Lord is going to pursue his people. I will allure her and notice I will bring her into the wilderness and speak comfort to her. Doesn't sound like the idea of a wonderful date being drawn out into the wilderness. But the idea of dependence is important. He is teaching her how much she needs him. And perhaps this is an illusion, not perhaps, it certainly is, especially with the rest of what is said in verses 14 and 15. It is an illusion back to the Exodus. When the people were brought up out of the land of Egypt, it was in the wilderness where they, they were taught dependence upon the Lord. They relied upon him for manna. They relied upon him for quail. They relied upon him for water. They needed him. They needed that to recognize that they needed God most high. And so it alludes back to that exodus, this place of need, but will also be the place of comfort. I will draw her. I will lure her. I will remind her that it was me she needed, not the Baals, not these other gods, but me. I was the one who provided for her, and I will speak comfort to her. And this exodus imagery continues on, or at least in and around the exodus and entering into the land and around the wilderness continues in verse 15. The Lord is the one who pursues, but he's also the Lord who restores and redeems. And we see this with the language in verse 15. And notice we see a restored vineyard. I will give her her vineyards from there. 
Now, he just talked about how he's going to destroy her fig trees, how he's going to destroy her vineyards, as she attributed it to her lovers. She attributed it to the Baal. She attributed it to gods other than her actual husband who gave her these very things. And so what was once a indictment against her is now going to be a sign of restoration. I will give her her vineyards from there. Perhaps this does even go back further all the way to Numbers 13, Remember when the people entered into the land, or I guess the spies entered into the land, and ten were bad, or ten were bad, two were good. Caleb and Joshua were the good ones. I said, we can go take it. What did they notice? The vineyards. They noticed the choice grapes. They noticed that very thing, and they grabbed a a branch and took that back to the people, but they were still afraid. So perhaps there's an uh, allusion back to the time where they would eventually wander in the wilderness for 40 years because of what they did against God because of not trusting in his ways. So there's other vineyard imagery in the prophets. Certainly we see Israel as a vineyard that's going to be plucked and removed in Isaiah 5 and then restored in Isaiah 27. Psalm 80 speaks about the restoration of that vineyard. Mark 12, the Lord Jesus in the parable of the vine dressers alludes back to Isaiah 5, specifically talking about how old covenant Israel is going to be judged and they shall be no more. So vineyard imagery uh, is used often in God's word. And here it is used positively. I will give her her vineyards from that place in the wilderness. But also notice there's going to be a restored hope. And the valley of Achor as a door of hope. Achor means trouble, the valley of trouble. And perhaps if you know your Bible history well, you know that this comes from Joshua chapter 7 with respect to Achan's sin. And that was on the doorstep of Israel entering into the promised land. That's perhaps why the door of hope is mentioned. And remember, Achan took from the spoils of Jericho. God said, do not take from the spoils of Jericho. That is the first fruits uh, to the Lord God most high. The rest of the land you can take, the rest of the plunder you can have, but do not take from Jericho. And what does Achan do? He takes from Jericho. And then the people are routed at I, and they don't know why they're routed at that place. And so they have to figure out what's going on. And God shows that it is Achan by way of Lot. He cast lots and they figured out uh, which one it is. And eventually that is called the Valley of Achor. So this place of trouble, this Valley of Trouble is now going to be a place of hope as a door of hope for the people. But then they're also going to be a restored people. She shall sing there a new song of salvation. We talk about the old song and the new song in the Psalms. The new song refers to the new song of salvation. It's going to be similar to her days of her youth. It's not going to be the same as the Exodus, but it's going to be like the Exodus. In the days of her youth, as in the day when she came up from the land of Egypt. He's using Exodus imagery to describe something about the new covenant era. And eventually Hosea picks up on this more throughout the rest of his prophecy, but especially in Hosea chapter 11, which is then quoted in Matthew chapter 2 to refer to our Lord Jesus Christ, who is the Exodus for his People, But here he's using this old covenant imagery, old covenant language to describe something about the new covenant era. Again, I think I said it's called prophetic idiom. 
And so it's going to be restoration, a restored people, restored hope, and a restored vineyard from the husband who pursues. But also the husband is going to protect as well in verses 16 through 18. And notice we see the husband, uh, who the husband is in verse 16, the Lord is the one whom she marries. It shall be said in that day, says the Lord. Notice the timing of the marriage in that day. In that day comes up again in verse 18. And in that day comes up again in verse 21. It's an eschatological emphasis. It's not going to be today, or at least at the time Hosea's prophecy. But in that day, there's going to be a time when it comes. There's going to be a time when it comes in its fullness. And we, the people of God, should not miss the mention of the marriage supper of the Lamb in Revelation chapter 19. We are waiting for that marriage to come in. We are waiting for that blessed wedding. We are waiting for that blessed time. And here we see the uh, reference to in that day, says the Lord, something shall happen, but not this time, but something future to Hosea at this moment. Certainly the Lord Jesus comes. He is our husband. Hopefully you all got that. Hopefully you understand that from Ephesians chapter five. Hopefully that's not new to you. And if it is wonderful, uh, own that, believe that, trust in that very thing. Uh, but I, we mention it often from this place and from this pulpit. And so it is the Lord who is our bridegroom. We are his bride. Certainly he uh, has purchased for us that wonderful uh, marriage that awaits. But we're still waiting for that very thing in that day. And notice, we shall know who is our husband that you will call me my husband and no longer call me my Baal is probably what it is, what it says. No, you'll no longer call me. Uh, you will call me my husband, no longer call me my master. As we know who the true husband is. She was attributing all her wealth to her lovers, attributing all her wealth to the Baals, all her wealth to things other than God most high. So now there's going to be in this new covenant era, there's going to be no confusion about who the husband is. There's going to be no confusion about the one who protects his people. His people shall know him and they shall know him intimately. For I will, verse 17, take from her mouth the names of the Baals and they shall be remembered by their name no more. They shall be removed. They shall be no more. And like any good husband, he also is going to provide for his people. Verse 18, he's going to give a good life. In that day, I will make a covenant for them with the beasts of the field, with the birds of the air, and with the creeping things of the earth. Bow and sword of battle I will shatter from the earth to make them lie down safely. I think there is an allusion here back to that Noahic covenant in Genesis chapter 9. Remember when we looked at the covenants in our Lord's Supper series? The Noahic covenant uh, is a covenant with creation. It's different than the one made with Adam. It's refracted from the creation mandate. Uh, it's the understanding there is sin in this world, but God is saying, I'm going to restrain sin. I'm going to make it possible for enterprise, family, and justice, albeit there's still sin in this world. That should be comforting and encouraging to know that God still operates according to that Noahic covenant. Uh, certainly the rainbow in the sky does not belong to the LGBTQ whatever uh, group. It does not belong to them. It belongs to God most high. It is God's rainbow. It is his sign of his blessing of delaying his judgment, a temporal blessing. And one of the benefits that signifies that, that the picture of what it uh, highlights is a sign of peace. 
And so one thing we can say is, I do not believe the covenant of grace or the new covenant is the same as the Noahic covenant, but the Noahic covenant still points to some things about the new covenant era. Certainly the ark is a type of Christ. Peter mentions this very thing as Noah and his family pass through judgment. It's a type of the Lord Jesus Christ that in him we pass through judgment. But perhaps we can also recognize, and other prophets do the same, is that when he talks about the covenant with the beasts, the field, the birds of the air, the creeping things, bow and sword, what's a rainbow? A rainbow is a bow and arrow just hung up, isn't it? It's not ready for battle, but it's hung up a sign of peace. So the bow and sword of battle will shatter from the earth to make them lie down in safety, safely or in safety. It highlights paradise. It highlights peace. It highlights harmony. And so to some degree, the Noahic covenant and mainly what Hosea is doing based upon that can point ahead to the blessings of the new creation and what the new creation shall look like. Namely, a time of peace, namely, a time of paradise, namely, a time of harmony that shall be forever. And the prophets use this often. It's found in Jeremiah 31, Ezekiel 34, covenant of peace, Isaiah 11, when he talks about the various animals and how, um, how children can play with snakes and not worry about the viper's den and that sort of thing. What, what image is he, are they trying to convey with that? How are they speaking to us? This is what the new creation shall look like. This is what the husband is going to provide for his bride. A life of safety, a life of harmony, and a life of peace. And so to some degree, the old creation, although fallen, although there are weeds, Weeds are a sign of the old creation. You just can't get rid of them. They just come up anywhere. I mean, there's so many signs of this old creation of the sin and decay, and yet there are some things about it that do point ahead to the new creation. We don't know fully what that new creation shall look like, but yet we can have some picture of what it shall be like. And this is what the husband is going to provide for his people in that new covenant era. He's going to provide peace. He's going to provide safety. He's going to provide prosperity for her and protect her as he should. A husband who pursues, a husband who protects, and clearly, brethren, this teaches us about the love of the Lord Jesus Christ, doesn't it? I mean, certainly the Lord Jesus Christ is the one to whom the Exodus points. His temptation in the wilderness is for 40 days, don't miss the illusions. Don't miss the reference points. Don't miss all the different themes and motifs that connect the Bible together. But certainly this husband imagery. I mean, this is explicit in Ephesians chapter 5. Husbands, here's what you're supposed to do. Here's your example. Jesus Christ. What does he do? He is the bridegroom who gives himself up for the Bride. Well, Paul is speaking what a hus- about what a husband must be for his wife. He talks about what Christ does for such an unlovely bride. Brethren, were we seeking Christ? Were we looking for him? It was he who saved us. The Israelites, again, in the context, they're going after the Baals, but Yahweh said, I will pursue her. I will allure her. I will go after her. And that's what the husband does. That's what Christ does. He is the one who gives himself for her. Redemption, exodus, 
And this is how we know the love of God for his people. Even our confession talks about, in 26.1, talks about the church, how we are the spouse. We are the bride of Christ. I made this comment before. Y'all look a little tired, so I'm going to say it again, dear brethren. Men, get over the idea that you're called the bride of Christ. Just get over that very thing. You are part of the bride of Christ. And women, get over the idea that sons, you are called sons of God, according to the language of adoption. The reason being, sorry, women would not have been adopted in the Greco-Roman world. So to say that all in Christ, Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, are sons, is a great privilege. Get over the modern things. Recognize what it says and be encouraged by the language of Scripture. And men, we are part of the bride of Christ, and we ought to appreciate what he has done for us. He has given himself for us. He loves us, and we ought then to love him and recognize that he is altogether lovely and chief among 10,000. And certainly we see God's love for us in the work of the son, in the work of the bridegroom, in his pursuit of his people. Thankfully, the husband pursues, but also thankfully, the husband promises as well. And this is what we see in verses 19 through 23. And verses 19 and 20, husbands are transitioning to the husband's promise. And in verses 19 through 20, we see the husband who betroths, the husband who purifies, the one who makes right. And notice, we see the Lord who betroths in verse 19. I will betroth you to me forever. Yes, I will betroth you to me. Twice he mentions that very thing. Now, the language of betrothal signifies something new. It's not going to be like the old marriage. It's going to be a little bit new. It's going to be different. It's going to be a new engagement that happens. And betrothal is just as good uh, as marriage Uh, I think we've talked about this before, especially when it comes to Mary and Joseph and betrothal. You're basically married. It's stronger than engagement. It had to be broken by divorce, but it's not yet fully consummated. And so there is this image here that highlights that uh, uh, you're as good as married, but it's not yet consummated. Again, think Revelation 19. Think the marriage supper of the Lamb. When shall that marriage supper of the Lamb be, dear brethren? It shall be at the consummation. It shall be when Christ comes back that we shall be part of that marriage supper forever and ever. And so we still are awaiting that time. But yet we are betrothed to God most high through the son. We are betrothed to Christ who is our bridegroom and we are his bride. And so she will be punished when we see the flow of Israel's history. She'll be punished, but he's looking ahead to something far greater something far more glorious. Unlike the first time, this one shall be forever, and something is going to be different about this marriage. The quality of it shall change. He says in verses 19 and 20, he shall betroth in righteousness, justice, loving kindness, mercy, faithfulness, and knowledge. Things shall be upright. Things shall be, uh, there shall be equity. Everything shall be right in this marriage. At this time, as God has entered into covenant with old covenant Israel, things are not right. They are not walking in righteousness. There is no equity in the land. There is no goodness in the land. There is only unrighteousness. And one thing the Messiah brings, according to Isaiah chapter 11, the the stump or the seed of Jesse, what he shall bring, he is going to bring righteousness and justice. He is going to establish it 
in the land. And this marriage will be one of righteousness. Things shall be right. There shall be a rightness to that marriage. But the marriage is also going to have warmth as well. Loving kindness and mercy. Covenant loyalty and warm concern for one another. There's going to be this care for one another. There's going to be this care within this marriage where, as we see, this, uh, this uh, um, Israel at this time does not care for Yahweh. Israel at this time wants Yahweh and the Baals, wants Yahweh and the Ashtoreth, wants all, Yahweh and all these other gods. Remember, in a marriage, it is exclusive, isn't it? In a marriage, it is between one man and one woman, and we certainly we see that intimate language, even in the language of loving kindness and mercy, covenant loyalty. Then he says in verse 20, I will betroth you to me in faithfulness. Faithfulness perhaps pervades all of these other things, a dependableness, a trustworthiness. Again, Israel was none of these things. They violated the old covenant, but something is going to be different about the new, and it's because of the husband's pursuit. And one beautiful thing about this new covenant and this new marriage shall be intimacy. And you shall know the Lord. Remember what he said in verse 13, she forgot me. And then verse 8, she did not know. Well, what does it say in verse 20? And you shall know the Lord. You shall have the intimate knowledge of the Lord God most high. You shall have the intimate connection with the God of heaven and earth. You have to have the intimate connection between a husband and a wife. Christ loves a specific people, namely his church. He does not love anyone else. And we see that with this language here, this betrothal, this promise. Here's what it shall be. Here's what shall happen. It shall be forever. And here's what the quality of this marriage shall look like. But also, we see the husband who propagates, verses 21 through 23. Do you notice that I, don't, I want to be careful not to um, draw out, here's how you act as a husband, here's how you act as a wife. I don't know that that's the application in this passage. However, do you notice that all those things are what a marriage should look like <laughs> for the most part? I mean, you know, righteousness and loving kindness and faithfulness. I mean, the husband who pursues, I mean... The man should pursue the wife. I know it happens the other way around. I understand that in these days. Uh, but it, you know what? If you're a young lad and you like a lady, pursue her. It sets the stage well for the marriage. We know who wears the pants in the family uh, based on the one who pursues. Again, it doesn't have to be exactly like that. We can still, if the lady pursues, the lady says, I like you first, that's fine. But there's still a certain order, but the husband pursues. The husband dies for her. The husband uh, is the one um, uh, who presents her, the teaches her, helps her as she grows. But even in marriage is the proper place of propagation as well. So that's not the main application, but uh, certainly we see all those things, what a marriage should be. But the main idea is what God does for us. And notice how he's going to propagate his people in the earth. Notice in verses 21 and 22, <clears throat> the Lord who controls heaven and earth. This is different from the Baals, right? He is the one who controls heaven and earth. So he says, it shall come to pass in that day, again, eschatological, looking ahead, that I will answer, says the Lord, I will answer the heavens and they shall answer the earth. Probably what it signifies is heaven and earth are in harmony. It highlights the natural purpose of the heavens and the earth working in harmony, which is to bless 
when sin came into this world, things have been corrupted. Even their purpose as well has been corrupted. There are natural disasters. There are things that corrupt in this present age. But in this time of propagation, the heavens and earth shall be in harmony with one another. And notice we see the abundance about the, with the Lord providing. The earth shall answer with grain, with new wine, and with oil. A reversal of verses 8 and 9. How he talked about how he is going to, she didn't recognize where it all came from, how he's going to take the, the grain and new wine and oil from her, but now he's going to give it to her once again. The earth shall answer with grain, with new wine, with oil. There shall be abundance in that land, and they shall be sown. And notice we see that with they shall answer Jezreel. We're starting to bring all the names of Hosea's children back into the fold here to describe something about the new covenant era. Jezreel can mean scatter, but it can also mean sow. And certainly he says, they shall answer Jezreel. And then he goes on to say in verse 23, then I will sow her for myself in the earth. He is talking about how he's going to propagate his people throughout the ends of the earth. He's talking about how he's going to spread the glory of God to the ends of the earth. That's what child-rearing was meant to be at creation, wasn't it? To spread God's glory to the ends of the earth. How Adam was supposed to have dominion to the ends of the earth by way of propagation, by way of child-rearing. And so we're going to see that the last Adam is going to raise children, and they shall be sown in the world. And I will sow her for myself in the earth. Jezreel, she shall be brought together. They shall become children of God. The Bible often uses not just husband-wife imagery, but also children and father. Certainly in John chapter 1, he talks about how one becomes a child of God, and he's very explicit with what he says there. He says in chapter 1, verse 12 and 13, he says, but as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, to those who believe in his name. Doesn't matter based on ethnicity anymore, but those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And so what this husband is going to do is he's going to propagate children in the earth with his wife. I will sow her for myself in the earth. And notice Jezreel, again, the reversal, God will scatter, now he'll sow, but also the reversal of mercy or not mercy. And I will have mercy on her who had not obtained mercy. And I will say to those who are my people going from low Ruhama to low Ami, then I will say to those who are not my people, you are my people and they shall say you are my God. Bringing all the children of Hosea here together once again and teaching us what their names signify, not just judgment, but also restoration, not just exile, but also exodus and redemption for these ones scattered sown. Those who had not obtained mercy shall now have mercy. Those who were not my people shall be my people. God's glory shall spread to the ends of the earth and all these shall say, you are my God. That is covenant language. I shall be your God and you shall be my people. That is covenant language. That is the heart of what it is, entering into covenant with God most high. This is what this husband is going to do. And that's exactly what the Lord Jesus does, isn't it? That's exactly what the church is. And in fact, just as we saw 
in chapter 1, verses 10 and 11, how that was quoted or alluded to in Romans 9, 26 and 1 Peter 2, 10. So too is verse 23 of Hosea chapter 2, quoted or alluded to. Let's remind ourselves about Romans 9 and 1 Peter. As he's talking about and answering the question, who is Israel? What makes someone part of Israel? It is by faith. And so if a Jew believes they're part of spiritual Israel, if a Jew does not believe, they become a spiritual Gentile. Just like if a Gentile believes they become part of spiritual Israel, they're part of the promise. And if a, a Gentile rejects, they are still part of, uh, part of the spir- uh, a spiritual Gentile. And so in 9, 25, and 26, talking about this very thing, he says, he says, also in Hosea, I will call them my people who are not, were not my people, and her beloved who is not beloved. And it shall come to pass in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, they shall be called the sons of the living God. But notice even he says, her beloved who is not beloved, my people and uh, um, those who had not obtained mercy. So that is alluded to there as well, talking about how the fulfillment of what Hosea says comes in the church of Christ. Similarly, we also see that in 1 Peter 2.10. <clears throat> Describing those who have not believed as well, those who have rejected and the promise and prophecy of that, he goes on to talk about those who have believed. And he uses old covenant language to describe the people of God. You who are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. You once were not a people, but are now the people of God who had not obtained mercy but have now obtained mercy. Those who were once dead in their trespasses and sins, those who were once not my people, have been called my people. And once again, the application is to the church of Christ. Uh, and the fulfillment of what Hosea says in verse 23 comes in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. For is that not his purpose? Is that not why he came to die? He came to purify a people for himself? He came to present her holy and without blame. That's exactly what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 5. And to give her blessings and wonderful things forevermore. I mean, he died for us that we might have intimacy with him. We might know the living God and have blessings forevermore. That's why Christ came. That's why he is the perfect and most blessed husband for such unlovely people like us. We don't deserve the white dress, dear brethren, but we have it in the Lord Jesus Christ. Jeremiah Burroughs says, Such is the grace of God to those who are in covenant with him, that it takes occasion from the greatness of their sins to show the greatness of his mercy, from the vileness of their transgressions to declare the riches of his grace. Brethren, remember what you once were. You once were dead in your trespasses and sins. You once were not my people. You once were unlovely. You once were not marriage material. You once were engaged in spiritual adultery. And yet did the Lord not pursue you? The Lord loves and saves his elect. Were we not like Israel, not paying attention, 
Were we not like Israel, not pursuing him, and yet he died for us, and yet he saved us? This is what I think Hosea wants us to see. He wants us to see the amazing grace of God. And I think hymn 270, the latter part of stanza one, sums it up well. From heaven he came and sought her to be his holy bride, and with his own blood he bought her, and for her life he died. Let's pray. Well, Lord, our God, we are thankful for your grace that you teach us, even in such uh, difficult uh, passages and even such difficult moments in the history of Israel, even such difficult pronouncements of judgment on what you will do, that you're the one who knows and sees the wickedness of the old covenant Israel. You know and see what they do. And yet we're thankful that even in the midst of that, you gave this promise in that day. And thank you that that day has come in the Lord Jesus Christ in his first coming. And that day shall come when he comes again. And thank you so much that we see your love for such undeserving people like us. We do not deserve your grace. We do not deserve your mercy. And yet you are pleased to give it. And thank you so much that you do. Thank you for the exodus. Thank you that we have been saved from our slavery to sin. Thank you so much, O Lord, that you protect us and keep us. Thank you so much for the peace that awaits us in the new heavens and new earth. Thank you so much for the righteousness and justice and loving kindness and mercy and faithfulness and intimacy uh, that characterizes this blessed marriage. And we long for that marriage supper of the Lamb. We long for Christ to come again. And we long for that fullness to come in where we shall eat with you in the kingdom of heaven forever. And so we ask and pray as we await, help us to be uplifted and encouraged by your love for us. Help us to praise your name because of your love for us. And help us to know more of your love for us as we read about it in your word, as we read about in various places in the Old Testament, as we learn more about your amazing grace toward undeserving wretches like us. We ask and pray that tonight would have been a night of encouragement for your people as we consider who you are and what you've done. We also pray that tonight would be the night of salvation for those that do not know you. Help them to know their sin. Help them to know their vileness. Help them to know their wretchedness. But may they see the sweetness and kindness and goodness of the Savior. May they believe upon him by faith and have mercy and forgiveness and be part of the bride of Christ and the promises of the new heavens and new earth. Thank you for all you give us. Thank you for the encouragement you provide. Help us as we go into the world. Give us strength, we pray. Thank you that you are protecting us. Continue to do so. We pray these things in the name of Christ. 